Take your Bible and uh, turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 3. We begin a new chapter today. Well, chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation contain uh, direct messages from the risen Lord Jesus to his churches, to seven local congregations in the province of Asia Minor in the first century, uh, and indeed to all of his churches throughout history, throughout the ages, uh, as it is repeated at the end of each one of these letters, uh, let uh, him who hears uh, what the Spirit says to the churches, right? And so Jesus is speaking to all of his churches, and thus uh, his church, uh, as a universal and global uh, and timeless entity. Um, and so each of these messages, while directed to a local church in a local situation, is indeed, by extension, addressed to us, uh, to all churches, to all believers. Uh, and so we do well to give attention uh, to the words of the Lord. We get such a keen insight into the things that Jesus values, uh, the things that Jesus um, commends and celebrates in his churches, as well as uh, warnings about the kinds of things that, that lead us astray, and that Jesus has strong uh, things to say about these various uh, sort of weaknesses and afflictions that a church may endure, uh, or pitfalls that they fall into. We've seen so far the story of a loveless church, a church that was strong on doctrine but soft on on love and, and compassion. We've seen an afflicted church, a church that actually didn't have any corrections offered to it, was being faithful, but was merely in a very strong, uh, persecuted uh, situation. And so we, we saw the story of this afflicted church and Jesus urging them to, to remain strong. We've seen the story of a compromised church, a church that was uh, making compromises with the, the pagan world uh, around them. Uh, to sort of make things easier for themselves. They began to participate in the worship of Roman emperors and, and other false gods, and Jesus had strong words for them. And last week we saw uh, Jesus' words to a, a tolerant church, a church that was tolerating evil, to tolerating false teaching and uh, immorality that sort of came along with that. And so Jesus had a stern warning uh, for that church as well. Today, in Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, we'll hear the story of a sleeping church. And I don't mean like the kind of church where people are just sort of slow and not expressive and uh, nodding off during sermons. But uh, a church that was spiritually asleep. Spiritually in a, uh, in a stupor. The church in Sardis receives these words from the Lord Jesus in Revelation 3, verses 1 through 6. I'll read these verses to you. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. And strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. 
Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white garments. And I will never, excuse me, they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father, before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Sardis was a city that was surrounded by a large, uh, by large canyon walls. The city was thought to be uh, impenetrable. Uh, they had this sort of naturally occurring fortress. Uh, and so uh, they thought nobody can uh, conquer us or attack us because we have these sort of mountainous uh, surroundings on our side. And indeed, that feeling of security uh, led uh, to t- two separate occasions where the watchmen of the city failed to do their job. And indeed, the city was besieged uh, by enemies and, and conquered it at various two different points in its history. So this sense of security uh, kind of lulled them to sleep as a city, and that complacency led to disaster for the city. And it seems that that very same complacency, uh, that very same sort of false sense of security, uh, has led the church in Sardis, spiritually speaking, uh, to the same result. The diagnosis that Jesus pronounces um, on their church does not match their uh, reputation in, in, in the community. Um, for perhaps they believe their own press uh, to the point that their vigilance for gospel doctrine and gospel living has all but disappeared. And Jesus finds the church, to state it generously, asleep. As he does with each of these letters, he introduces himself, uh, the one who is sending this message, uh, with uh, imagery from chapter 1. And so he says to them here, the sort of Christ identity in uh, this letter is that uh, it is the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I would summarize this as the sender of, of the spirit and angels. Christ is the sender of the spirit and of angels. That phrase that he is the one who has the seven spirits. Now, of course, the seven spirits is a reference to chapter 1, verse 4, where in the, uh, the introduction to the book of Revelation, uh, there's this Trinitarian greeting um, where, where John offers peace uh, not offers, but 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 prays for, pronounces peace upon his grace upon his readers from Father, Spirit, and Son, and the way that he designates the the Spirit in verse four of chapter one is from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and that doesn't mean that there are seven individual Holy Spirits or that the Trinity is actually like eight or nine persons. It's a symbolic representation of the fullness of God's Spirit. And again, as the number seven repeatedly uh, means throughout this book, it, it symbolizes fullness and completeness and perfection. And so to say that the seven spirits are before God's throne is to speak of the one Holy Spirit who is himself God. 
God the Spirit. And when Jesus says uh, that these are the words of him who has the seven spirits, um, it is an indication that Christ is the one who gives, who, who sends the Holy Spirit, which is consistent with his own teaching in John 15, 26, where he told his disciples uh, after his return to heaven, he would send a helper to his disciples, namely the Spirit of Truth. And so he, he, he told them there that he would be sending the Spirit. Uh, and so just as uh, he said there, we find again here that Jesus Christ is the one who has the Spirit of God doesn't mean he owns the Spirit of God. It means he is the, the administrator of uh, the Spirit and his ministry. He is the, the one who sends the Spirit uh, to his people. And he is the one who has the seven stars. That is a reference uh, to that vision of Jesus that John had in chapter 1 when Jesus commissioned him to write. John chapter, uh, Revelation 1, verse 16, it says, In his right hand he held seven stars, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like uh, the shine, shining sun. I just got the wrong... Yes, excuse me. In his right hand, he held seven stars. There it is. And then Jesus, in verse 20 of chapter 1, uh, interpreted that for John as, as for the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand, and the seven lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. So the stars that are in his hand are the angels of the churches. And we don't know whether each church has one particular angel or whether he sends his angels um, at, at will by his sovereignty to his churches to help and support and minister in different ways. But nevertheless, he is the one uh, who, who's bidding the angels in heaven do, right? So when he comes to the church in Sardis, he's saying, I am the one who has the spirit of God to give. And who has the, the, the ministry, the resources of the angels of heaven to dispatch to you for your help. And that will become a very important uh, reality uh, given the charge that he makes against this church. Namely, that you are spiritually dead or, or dying. What you need is new life. And the one who gives life is the Spirit of God. And the one who sends the Spirit of God is Christ himself. I have. The point is, Jesus is the one who has the spiritual resources at his disposal that the church in Sardis desperately needs in order to stir them from their spiritual slumber. So Christ comes to this church as the sender of the Spirit and angels. And then he has this correction for them. He jumps right into a correction. There's no commendations here to begin with. He says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Again, I summarize the, the, the actual state of this church as being more like sleeping and in danger of dying. They are spiritually asleep. Now, their spiritual slumber contrasts, apparently, with their public reputation. So the first thing he says after he says, I know your works, is uh, other people think one thing about you, 
but I see something different, right? Uh, maybe, maybe your community uh, thinks you've got good things going on, uh, thinks you're, a, you're a, a good, lively, vibrant, faithful church, but you are actually dead. You're actually not who people think that you are. Now, so this is a church that's, that's well thought of by their community. Maybe it's a church with, you know, a cutting-edge facility and uh, a full-orbed uh, list of, of programs for every age and affinity group uh, staffed by, uh, by capable, competent leaders. Maybe uh, it's, it's a church with, you know, with real uh, slickly produced worship services and a great band and great lighting. Maybe it's a, worship sur- it's a church that has a really relatable, cool preacher. I wonder at what point in this list you realized I wasn't talking about imprint. Anyway, um, so maybe it's a church like that, right? That, that the people around them would think, man, they got it going on down there. I'm not really a church-going type, but if I were going to go to church, I'd probably check out that one. Maybe it's that kind of church. But they are dead. Or at least dying. <laughs> Jesus commands later to, to wake up. Uh, and to strengthen what remains and is about to die uh, suggests that perhaps the, the, the pronouncement of their deadness is a bit of a hyperbole. Uh, you are dead. And then he says, you know, there, you have a little bit left, but it's dying. And you need to wake up, right? And, and so it, it's a bit of a hyperbole. But they are spiritually asleep and in danger of truly dying. When our reputation is more favorable than our reality, we're in the territory of hypocrisy. And I think that's one of the things that's going on at this church in Sardis. They are living a a, a sort of a dual life almost. They they are hypocrites in the sense that their stated values and beliefs, and maybe even the the way that the the community around them uh, thinks of them, is, are vastly out of step with their actual lived practice. There, there, there is a gap between what they say they believe and, and what they actually do. Or what they do in certain terms of like religious movements and motions and, and where their hearts are. We know how the Lord feels about that. He calls worship vain when it's lip service. These people worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me, away from me with your new moons, says the Lord to the people of Israel. So there's a danger. Uh, it was danger for Sardis. They had fallen into it. And I think there's a danger for any church uh, to, to be sure that we, that we live out what we say we believe. And if we, have, if we look really good on paper, and we've got a great doctrinal statement, and we've got a great mission and vision statement, and we've got great plans for how we're going to uh, fulfill uh, the, the mission that Jesus has given us, but we are complacent, and we're lazy, and we're not doing it, then there's hypocrisy uh, there. There's a real danger for, for any church, including ours, to fall into that kind of false security, even pride about some of those things, right? Well, we're the only church in town that does this or that or that other thing. And that almost becomes an excuse to not do what Christ has called us to do. 
So what is the essence of a dying church? Uh, you know, there, there, there's a, that, that's a fair question to ask here, and the text gives us a, a decent uh, window into it. The, the sort of anatomy of a, of a dying church is essentially this. It's a lack of works of faith. It's a lack of spiritual fruit. The first thing he says to them, in, in verse 1, the second part of it is, I know your works, <laughs> that you are dead. Right? You have a reputation as being alive, but you're actually dead. I know your works. Well, what does he know about their works then? Uh, his pronouncement of their spiritual deadness is directly tied to what he knows about their works. Right. So what is it that he knows about their works? Well, he tells us uh, down at the end of verse 2 where he says, I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. You, you've not done what you've been called to do. You've not completed the work that I've given you. If you'd indulge me, uh, why don't you flip with me for just a moment to James chapter 2. I bet you remember these verses. James chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. Here, here is how the Apostle James speaks into a situation similar to this. He says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and be filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. He goes on to say, Someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. He goes on to say, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. That's what James, the, 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 the apostle, has to say about the relationship between faith and works. Now, of course, he's not contradicting justification by faith, as we understand it. The, the doctrine uh, uh, of new life in Christ that comes simply on the virtue of faith, and not by our own sort of merit that we earn by our righteous deeds. It, it's, it, salvation comes to us, justification is granted to us by faith, and, and faith alone. And James isn't contradicting that reality, even though on the surface of it, it might seem that way. What he's doing is highlighting the incontrovertible reality that a faith that justifies is a faith that works. A faith that justifies is a faith that works. True faith in Christ is evidence of our new birth uh, by the Spirit of God. And that new birth shows itself in works. It shows itself in, in good deeds, in spiritual fruit in acts of love and kindness and mercy and service and righteousness and justice. These are the kinds of markers of someone who has a faith by which he is justified. This is why we so often speak of, uh, of such spiritual fruit, uh, of faithfulness to the truth and, and deeds of love and service as evidences of grace. Our godly actions are outward proofs of God's grace 
at work in us. And so true faith reveals itself in good works, in spiritual fruit. And so when there is a lack of spiritual fruit, when there are good works that are incomplete, as Jesus says here, you've not, your works are not complete in the sight of God, then that points to, really, the, the absence of a true, genuine, justifying faith. Because true, justifying faith shows itself by its works. And so Jesus is giving a very strong warning to this church in Sardis to say that, listen, if I'm looking at your deeds, if I'm looking at the way that you live, and I'm looking at the spiritual fruit in your church, I'm not sure I'm seeing true faith. I'm not sure I'm seeing evidence that the Holy Spirit is really alive and at work in you because you are not living out the fruit and the works that come with true faith. And so there's a challenge that comes to us. Look at your life and ask some evaluative questions. Are you regularly going to God's Word for spiritual nourishment and help? Are you growing in personal godliness, increasing in the virtues of Christ-like character? And I think one of the greatest places to go for that is the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Are you growing in those things? Are you taking time regularly to invest in other people, showing love and care for others in practical ways, Christian and non-Christian alike? Are you taking opportunities to speak of the gospel and your faith in Jesus to those who don't know him? Or in these areas and others, does your talk outpace your walk? I think that's what's going on in Sardis. They had a good reputation. They probably had a big talk, but they were living it out. There was a gap between what they said and what they were known for and what they were actually carrying out in practice. And we should ask the same questions about uh, our, ourselves corporately as, as a church. Does our reputation among our community, even among other churches uh, in our area, outshine our actual fruitfulness in kingdom service? These are questions that we should uh, consider uh, and, and seek humility and honesty and ask the Lord to, to, to grow us, to strengthen us. So this is the pronouncement, this is the diagnosis of the, the church in Sardis. You, you have a reputation for being alive, but man, you're, you're spiritually uh, on the way to being dead. You are slumbering, you are dying. And he gives, in response, in verses 2 and 3, five commands. Five commands of, of what to do in light of their sort of spiritual slumber. Uh, and and these, these commands come to us like a barrage of exhortations in rapid-fire succession. Right, We might be tempted to kind of look at each one and break it down. What exactly does this one mean? And we'll do that just a little bit. But really, I, I think the, the point here is, I, I get this image of Jesus like grabbing this church by the shoulders, as it were, and like shaking them. Will you wake up? 
And like that's the sense, that's the tone that this sort of list of exhortations has. It's like, come on, come on, wake up, strengthen, repent, remember, right? Just over and over. So let's look at these commands uh, briefly, beginning in verse 2. Number one is he says, wake up. That's the first thing he says, wake up. All right, well, if they're actually spiritually dead, they can't wake up. Waking up isn't going to happen. So uh, that, 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 that's evidence that there's at least some semblance of life, uh, spiritual life there, but it's, it's in danger. He says, wake up. Greg Beale says, in order to carry out their call from the risen Lord to proclaim the gospel, they need the Spirit's life-giving power, which raised Jesus from the dead and will revive them from their spiritual torpor. Uh, and, and again, Jesus comes to them as the one who has the Spirit of God and the, the angels at his disposal. And so when he says, wake up, he's saying, I've got what you need. I have the resources for you. You need the Spirit to infuse new life in you. Lean on Him. Look to Him. Plead with Him. Wake up. Then He says, strengthen what remains and is about to die. (laughs) Strengthen what remains and is about to die. There's something left, but it's not much. It's similar to the church in Ephesus at the beginning of chapter 2, the first uh, church letter that we read. Uh, They started out better than their current trends, right? Ephesus started well, and then they've sort of descended into into a loveless state. And he says, you know, you you have forsaken the love you had at first. And so similarly here, he says, strengthen what remains. Like there's something there from, uh, from earlier uh, and you need to, uh, to return to it and, 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 and feed it and strengthen it. They had the gospel. They had spiritual fruit. They had works of faith going on. They started well, but they've gotten complacent. They've gotten sleepy. And so he says, strengthen what remains. Then the third command is this in verse 3. Remember what you received and heard. Remember what you received and heard. This call is to consider what they had to begin with, namely the gospel. Remember the gospel. Start telling yourself that story again. Remind each other of what's true. Remind each other of what I, the Lord Jesus, have done for you to give you forgiveness and cleansing and and new life and eternal hope. Consider the gospel. Consider the faith that you had at the first and how it perhaps expressed itself in in works of love and and, and righteousness. So consider it, remember it, and then he says, keep it. Keep it. Once you've gotten a hold of this, like once you've regained a sense of the importance of gospel root and gospel fruit, hold on to it similar to his exhortation to Thyatira that we looked at last week. Hold fast to what you have. And as he said to Thyatira, I don't lay on you any other burden than what you already have. Just hold on to it. Just stay true to what you have. He says the same kind of thing here. Like, you need to remember what you had. You need to cultivate it. You need to remember the gospel. You need to remember the spiritual life that you've been called to and that you've been given uh, by the Spirit of God. 
And then you just need to hang on. Just need to keep it. And then finally, repent. Repent. Repent means to turn away. Confess it and forsake it. Name it and drop it. Right? You need to say, I am wrong about this. And then you need to move away from it. That is what repenting requires. Name the sin. Forsake the sin. And that's what he's calling them to here. Lord, we've been lazy. Lord, we've been afraid. We've been too easily satisfied. We've, we've compromised with the world. We've stopped taking care of each other. We, we've stopped reaching out to our neighbors with the gospel. Admit the failures, whatever they are, and then turn from them. Purpose in your heart to live once again for the glory of Jesus Christ. Repent. Wake up is his call to this church. And it's his call to anybody who bears the name of Jesus Christ, professing to be a believer and a disciple and a follower of Jesus who is living out of step with his profession. Wake up. Come back. Repent. Hold on. And he gives them a clear warning about what will happen if they don't. He says to them, repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Now that's possibly a reference to uh, Christ's return. Uh, at the end of history, New Testament does elsewhere use the, the, the return of Jesus, uh, or speak of the return of Jesus in the terms of a thief. Um, uh, like a thief comes, and of course not meaning uh, secretive, like we would know that Jesus came, but, but meaning sudden, meaning unpredicted, uh, at an unforeseen time. And that's what Jesus says here. I'll come to you like a thief, and you won't know what hour I'm coming. It will surprise you. When I, when I come against you. Or it could be, um, as with similar threats of corrective action toward other churches, the churches in Ephesus and Pergamum and Thyatira, it could also indicate the prospect of a temporal judgment in history. right? So he may be referring to, I'm going to come again at the end of history and it's going to go badly for you. right? It's a, a warning of final judgment. Or it could be, Jesus saying, at some point in time, in this age, before I return, I will judge you, right? I will uh, come against your church like a thief, and you won't know when it happens. Either way, the warning is stern and a bit ominous. If the church will not take hold of the spiritual resources provided, repent of their complacency and compromise, and wake up, Christ's judgment is sure to come upon the church. Hey, we hear warnings like this soberly and, and hear and heed them. Okay, there was a kind of a commendation, right? This general pattern is to say something good about the church and something bad about the church and then make a, a promise, right? Uh, he started out right with the bad, right? Uh, people think you're alive, but you're really not. Um, it's a little bit of a commendation here, kind of. In, in verse 4, he says, Yet, you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled 
their garments. And so uh, th there's a few among the church uh, that have remained uh, true to Christ. And that the language of, of the soiling of their garments indicates that the church's spiritual complacency uh, has probably uh, led the, the members of the church into the same kinds of worldly compromise uh, that we've seen from the other congregations so far as they were pressured into the worship of false gods and sexual immorality and participating in you know the Roman imperial cult and, and the like. And so the soiled garments would belong to those who have not remained faithful to Christ under these pressures. And so to the extent that the church has been spiritually lazy and complacent and slumbering, they are not uh, uh, remaining true. They are succumbing to those pressures. And so the same sort of uh, charges that were made against the, the other churches, Pergamum and, and Thyatira, could probably be made to Sardis as well. And it appears that only a few of the members of the church at Sardis have withstood these pressures and remained loyal in their devotion to Christ. And so that his only commendation is, I know this isn't true of everybody. I know there are a few people in that church who are still hanging on and who are still going strong and are still being faithful to me. And the rest of the words that he has in this letter are really to them. And by extension to any who would heed the warning and repent. But the, the turning point toward uh, the promises uh, of the eternal kingdom um, is right here. On these few who have not soiled their garments. And for these few, Jesus provides wonderful, poignant, precious promises of life in his kingdom. So let's look uh, at, at, at the rewards that Jesus offers to the, the conquerors. I see three. There's three rewards that Christ promises. They're the rewards of friendship, purity, and security. Friendship, purity, and security. Look, look at the end of verse 4. You'll see what I, where I get friendship from. He says, if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. I'm sorry, that's verse 3. Verse 4. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis. People who have not soiled their garments, and here it is, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. They will walk with me. That walking with Jesus is an image of, of intimacy and of relationship. Just as Adam and Eve once walked with God in the cool of the day in Eden, so those who remain faithful to Jesus will walk beside him in the new heavens and the new earth. Friends for eternity. Doesn't this notion fill you with joyful anticipation? The thought of walking side by side with Jesus, our Savior, as our friend. How sweet it will be one day to walk beside him speaking with him personally, as a man talks with his friend. This is what Jesus promises to those who remain faithful to him. We will walk together in the new heavens and new earth. There's, there's friendship with the Lord that's promised. There's purity that's promised. And you can see the sort of repeated notion here of, of, of white garments, of white clothing. 
Right? He says that these faithful in Sardis haven't soiled their garments, and so they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. And then he says that they would uh, thus, the, the ones who conquer, that's where he adds this, uh, this phrase, it's in all the letters, to the one who conquers, they will be clothed thus in white garments. So you've got the, the walking in white with Jesus. You've got the, the promise of him clothing uh, with white garments the one who conquers. And this is clearly a symbol of, of purity, of cleanness, of, of innocence. In the immediate context, of course, that the purity of these conquerors is by virtue of their faithfulness to Christ, that they have not soiled their garments by uh, compromise and disloyalty. But how can we think of Christians who are nevertheless fallen, sinful people, how can Jesus think of Christians, even those whom he here deems as faithful, as pure or, or worthy? I think the answer to that question shows itself in Revelation chapter 7, where John's vision of uh, the throne room in heaven unfolds, and he, he sees there a multitude of people from every tribe and nation and people and language of the earth before the throne of God, and they're all clothed in white robes. That's the way that he sees the whole multitude of the saints in heaven worshiping God is in white robes. And they're described like this in chapter 7, verse 14. These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The robes of the saints have been made white, not by their own righteousness, but by the righteousness of Jesus Christ, purchased for them by his death on the cross. It is only the blood of the Lamb that removes the stains of sin from our soiled garments and makes us worthy to walk beside him in glory. As the old hymn said it, let me ask you, friends, are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Those who cleanse themselves in the blood of Christ's cross will be given this reality, will be given this uh, relationship with Jesus, a friendship, and, and walking in purity and in innocence. Those who admit their sin and trust upon Jesus Christ's atoning death have their sins forgiven, their failures erased, and their souls cleansed forever by the blood that he shed on the cross. Won't you trust in him? That's what Holy Week is all about. That's what Good Friday is all about. It's remembering and reflecting and praising God because Christ on the cross shed his blood to cleanse us from our sins so that we could walk with him in purity and in righteousness because we're not wearing our own righteousness, we're wearing his. We're wearing Christ's robe of righteousness. And so to the conqueror, he promises friendship, and he promises purity. 
and holiness. And, and finally, he promises security. Security. And he, does, he expresses this in two ways. Through a mention of the book of life and through the notion of confessing uh, the names of these uh, saints uh, before his father. Let's take those one at a time. He says in verse 5, I will never blot his name out of the book of life. And the notion of a book of life contains a, a stark contrast with the pronouncement that Jesus made upon this church, right? That you are dead. That's how it started. I know your works. You've got a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. And at the tail end here, what he's saying is, the one who conquers, I will never blot his name from the book of life. Life is here. Life is, is for those who have been written in this book from the foundation of the world. Revelation speaks of, uh, of the book of life six times in total. Uh, and a few of those times it says, uh, it speaks of those who have been written in the Lamb's book of life from before the foundation of the earth. In other words, Christ knows the names of the people, the saints who are in his book. And what he's saying here is, I will never, ever blot you out of it. If I put your name in that book from before the foundation of the world, it's there. It's good. No one can scratch it out. I will not scratch it out. It's there forever. Now, it's easy to think. I want to give a little sort of theological parentheses here. It's easy to think that Jesus might be sort of implying uh, that someone might be a true Christian, you know, born by the Spirit of God, his name written in the book of life, and then cease to be a Christian. Right? It's easy to jump to that conclusion by assuming that the, the corollary, the opposite of that is, is true. So when he says, the one who conquers, I will never blot his name out of the book of life, um, you might infer, well, the opposite must be true also, uh, that the one who does not conquer, he will blot their names out of the book of life. Right. So we, we can almost automatically assume the opposite uh, is, is uh, implied, is implicitly true. But it's not, and it's emphatically not. Uh, that is not what Jesus says here at all. The only reason he mentions the book of life and, and he mentions the names that are written in the book of life is to make a promise that he's never going to blot it out. He never in any place says, and nor is it implied anywhere else in the New Testament, that somebody whose name is in this book of life might have their name removed from it. To have your name in the book of life is forever, eternally secure. The name is there and it's not going away. He does not say he will blot out anyone's name. He only mentions the names of those who conquer as being in his book. And he assures them that he will never blot out their names. In Revelation 13, verse 8, he says, Everyone whose name has not been written in the Lamb's book of life from the foundation of the world will worship the beast. So at that point in John's vision as it unfolds, we've got this beast coming up and, and people are amazed by it and, and beginning to worship the beast. But what he says there in Revelation 13, 8 is the ones who worship the beast are the ones whose names were not written in the book of life. It doesn't say I had some people written down in this book of life and then they started worshiping the beast. Too bad I'm taking their names out. That's not what he says. He says the ones who worship the beast are the ones whose names were never in the book of life to begin with. And all of that is consistent with the explicit teaching of 1 John 2.19, where John, the author of this book, is speaking of those who seem to have left the faith. 
They seem to have, he says, gone out from us. They used to have the, the shape and appearance and language of being Christians, and now they're, they're suddenly not anymore. Here's what he says. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. In other words, when a professing Christian leaves the faith, they show themselves to have never truly belonged to Jesus Christ in the first place. It says nothing about uh, an in and out and back in and back out again kind of a, a, a reality in terms of spiritual life and eternal security. If your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, your name is there forever. No one's taken it out. Jesus will never blot out the name. So the point of mentioning the Book of Life is to issue a promise to those whose names are written there. Namely, they will surely conquer. The ones whose names are written in the book of life will certainly conquer. The classic uh, Reformed articulation of this truth is the doctrine uh, of perseverance of the saints. The doctrine of perseverance claims this. Those who are truly born again by the Spirit of God and belong to Jesus Christ will surely persevere to the end. Meaning they will remain in faith. They will persevere in faith to the end. Here's how our statement of faith, the Baptist faith, the message says it. Those whom God has accepted in Christ and sanctified by his Spirit will never fall away from the state of grace, but shall persevere to the end. Believers may fall into sin through neglect and temptation, whereby they grieve the Spirit, impair their graces and comforts, and bring reproach on the cause of Christ and temporal judgments on themselves, yet they shall be kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. So yes, Christians still sin. Yes, there can be seasons of, there will be seasons of, of wandering and dryness and, and perhaps rebellion. But those who truly belong to Jesus Christ, those whose names have been written in the Lamb's book of life from before the foundation of the world, will return. They will respond to, uh, to exhortation and, and to warning, and they will come back eventually to the Lord and to his people. And they will endure faithfully to the end. And the one who doesn't endure faithfully to the end shows that he wasn't one of Christ's to begin with. So the one who's written in the book of life, I will never blot out his name. That is done deal secure. I will keep my own to the end. And then the second way that he expresses the reality of security is to say this. I will confess his name before my father and his angels, before his angels. And the angels here, I think, sort of gives us a call back to verse 1, right? Where he introduced himself as the one who has the seven spirits and the seven stars. Namely, the Spirit of God and the angels of God. And so he calls them back in as, as witnesses here, as it were. I will confess before the Father and before his angels the name of everyone written in this book of life who has remained faithful and will surely remain faithful to the end. Sounds a lot like Jesus' own teaching in Matthew chapter 10. Verse 28, he says, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And then down in verse 32, he says, So, everyone who acknowledges me before men, 
I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. So he shows us here what perseverance in the faith looks like. He shows us what conquering looks like. And it looks like this. Stay true to Jesus. Name Christ as Savior and submit to him as Lord. When the pressure is on to reject him, to deny him, to embrace false ideologies and false gods, reject those and stay true to Christ even when it costs you. No matter what it costs you. And when we stay true, we prove that our names were in the Lamb's Book of Life from the very beginning. And we belong to him, and we will surely thereby conquer. So the exhortation is, wake up, hold on, and you'll walk with me forever. Brethren, let us be watchful. Let us be aware of our own uh, propensity toward laziness and complacency. And let's strive with the strength of God to remain alert to his word with its warnings and its promises. With the confidence resulting from the knowledge that our names are written in the Lamb's book of life, may we lean on each other and press forward in faith until the day that we walk with Jesus side by side in our forever home. Let's pray.